Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Driving a hard bargain. Last time I checked, the cost of living in BC was 4.8%. None of my members have had a 4.8% wage increase. The impact of inflation as major labor contracts come up for renewal. Also tonight, a beloved mural barely recognizable. Heart breaking to see our work being um, destroyed like this. The increasingly futile fight against vandals in Chinatown. And a voluntary tax hike. I'm not sure how many people would be on board or not. What the city of Victoria is proposing on the path to reconciliation. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. There are growing concerns the current spike in inflation won't be going away anytime soon. Tough timing as a number of major labor union contracts are coming up for renewal and renegotiation, with the pressures of the pandemic hanging over all of them. Ted Chernecki has our top story. There's another bug out there, and like COVID, it's going viral. We are more than likely now in a lasting inflationary period, one not seen in almost three decades, and it's making for very complex collective bargaining. To negotiate contract changes. The DCGEU is currently negotiating six separate contracts, some of which expire at the end of this month. We know BC is a very expensive place to live, and if we're going to attract people to come and work here, we need to pay them uh, appropriately. But what's appropriate? At the bare minimum, workers are going to want wage increases to match inflation. And the Consumer Price Index from Stats Canada says last month it hit 5.7% nationally and 4.7% in B.C. But the index doesn't necessarily reflect the real cost of living, because it includes some items one can put off and others one can't. That's what makes it difficult, because those items are inelastic in demand. I still got to get food. I got to live somewhere and I'm going to travel somehow. So that's what makes it problematic. And those numbers are all much higher than the sort of average inflation number we're getting from StatsCan. BC's inflation rate last month for food was 6.7 percent, shelter 6.6 percent and transportation 8.7. The index doesn't even take into account that housing prices in BC are up 20 percent on average. The unions are at the table arguing that paying a fair wage isn't necessarily bad for the economy. We know for a fact that our members, they're not going out to dinner. They're not going to the local hairdressing or or barbershop. They aren't hiring the local contractor to do renovations. They can't afford to do that. But can the employer afford to pay such a dramatic wage increase? Hey, here's your 5.7% wage increase. How is that going to be paid? If it's a taxpayer, that will add to the deficit or add to taxation. Every company, I'm sure, had some factor of saying, you know what, we're going to have to pay 3% more, whatever their number was. I doubt many went 5 or 5.5% more. And so inflation rears its ugly head. The rising prices of everything we see today have almost nothing to do with wage increases. That's still to come. Ted Chernacki, Global News. 
And Keith Baldry joins us now with a closer look at the public sector contracts that are coming mm -hmm. due and the potential costs, Keith. Yes, 184 contracts. Most of them expire. Almost all of them expire on March 31st. Uh, involves 393,000 public sector unionized employees. So the numbers are big no matter what the wage increase is. Here's how it breaks down. On a three-year contract across the board, if everybody got 2% a year for three years, you can see the numbers there. $3.7 billion. A 3% across the board for three years, $5.6 billion costing the government. 4%, $7.4 billion. And 5% a year, which would cover the current inflation rate, or almost cover the current inflation rate, works out to almost $10 billion, $9.3 billion. Now, again, interestingly enough, in the current budget, this one right here, there is actually $10.2 billion in unallocated spending in the contingency fund. But that's also used to cover off things as excessive wildfire costs, flooding, uh, weather emergencies and such, which can total billions of dollars on an annual basis. I think one of the solutions that will come out of this, Sophie, look for the government to offer a significant uh, signing bonus, as they did on the eve of the 2010 Olympics. Back then it was about four or $5,000. Not sure to be that big this time, but I think that's a one-time payment that would not inflate the budget on a cumulative basis, such as the numbers I just showed you. We'll see how they deal with it. Thank you, Keith. A new poll shows the impact of those rapidly rising prices on Canadian families. The Ipsos poll, done exclusively for Global News, shows 60% of Canadians are concerned they may not have enough money to feed their families. That figure is up 16% from just four months ago. In general, 85% say they're worried everyday items are becoming less affordable. And 68% of those asked say they may not be able to afford gasoline. 73% say they're worried interest rates will rise more quickly than they can adjust. Well, as health restrictions ease, many companies are trying to get their employees back to the office. But a new survey from the Angus Reid Institute says doing so may be harder than anticipated. Andrea McPherson has more. You are steps from your coffee maker. Hey. Petting distance from your pooch. Your office? Just one click away, and you've been operating this way since the start of the pandemic. So if you're not ready to give up working from home just yet, you should know you're not alone. If you are able to get out and take a walk for yourself or walk the dog or spend a few minutes with your kids uh, over the course of a day in a way that you couldn't before, that's pretty meaningful. As companies look to get you back into that cubicle, a new Angus Reid survey finds 56% of people would look for a new job if they had to return to the office, with 23% saying they would quit on the spot. They are of a view that they've been extremely productive. And indeed, if that wasn't the case, you know, employers would have called them back much sooner. In fact, four in five employees argue working from home has not affected their performance and half say they haven't had any issues staying in the loop. But there are other benefits workers are willing to fight to hang on to. Work-life balance, your relationship with your spouse and kids and people in your household, your own mental health. HR experts calling for flexibility as they say businesses actually have a lot to lose. People aren't super excited about being told what to do. And you layer that on with the labor shortage that we have is that workers really can dictate what they want to do. She says what people don't want to do is sit in rush hour traffic, pay for gas, look for parking, when they could be using that extra time and money to perhaps sleep in a little later and start dinner a little sooner. Don't make the assumption that you can just call everyone back to work and everything will be just like it was two years ago. Workflows have changed. 
Knowledge workers have proven that they can work effectively from home. She suggests an open dialogue of what's important to do in person versus what can still be done remotely in an effort to meet everyone halfway. Andrea McPherson, Global News. Victoria City Council is taking a different and perhaps surprising approach to supporting Indigenous communities. The new plan would give homeowners the option to pay extra on their property tax bill, with the money going toward a reconciliation fund. As Kylie Stanton reports, those behind the idea say it's another meaningful step toward reconciliation. The drumming, dancing, and of course, the acknowledgements. The lands of the people of the Songhees and, and the Esquimalt nations. They've all become an important part of every public event, but the city of Victoria is ready to take things a step further. We're just feeling, and, and lots of homeowners are feeling, like it's time to do more than words. Working with Reciprocity Trusts, Victoria's mayor and council are pitching a new program that will allow property owners to make voluntary donations to the Songhees and Esquimalt nations. There will be three options, uh, an additional 5% or 10% of your property taxes or any other amount you'd like to contribute. At this point, there's no way of knowing how many people would get on board. And so we asked around. I think it's an excellent idea. I'm totally 100% for it. Giving back to that community is huge. I think that the number of people that want to be able to do that and the number of people that can do that is going to be disproportionate. Hypothetically speaking, let's assume 5% of property owners tack on an additional 5% for the First Nations. With the average property tax bill pegged at $5,000, that's a $250 donation. And with 5% of the 29,000 folios in the city contributing, it would generate a total of $362,500. And this is one small thing that people can do. It's another tool in a reconciliation toolbox. In a statement, the Songhees Nation said, We hope that this sets a precedent for other cities and municipalities to follow suit. There was a school gym. Given the circumstances and revelations of this past year, particularly the discovery of unmarked burial sites across the country, Country, some question if this optional program goes far enough to truly address reconciliation. But those involved argue it's a step in the right direction. It's an important part of the process. It's, it's neither tax nor charity. We Reciprocity is what, what we're calling it. The program would be the first of its kind for a local government in Canada and is expected to continue in perpetuity. Council will be voting on the motion on Thursday. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. A Vancouver man has been charged with assault after video was released of a man being pushed down the stairs at Granville Skytrain Station. The incident happened on March 1st. Police say the victim and suspect allegedly had a verbal exchange outside the station. Then the suspect followed the victim into the station, pushing him down a set of stairs before kicking him. Police say Bradley King was arrested after video of the incident hit 80,000 views online. King has been released until his next court appearance. An arrest warrant has been issued for a Vancouver Island father after he and his daughter went missing last month. 36-year-old Jesse Bennett is wanted by RCMP for contravention of a custody order. Mounties say there is now enough evidence to recommend a criminal charge against him. Jesse and his 7-year-old daughter Violet were reported missing January 24th. They haven't been seen since. RCMP say he could be anywhere in Canada at this point. If you have any information on their whereabouts, you are asked to call police. 
Community members in Chinatown are once again demanding more be done to stop graffiti on walls and alleyways in their neighborhood. It comes after a monumental mural in an East Georgia alley was hit with a massive tag, effectively ruining the artwork. Kristen Robinson reports. The devastation is hard to look at. It's heartbroken to see it. Does. Just two weeks after repairing minor tags on their Chinatown mural, Sean Chow and Catherine E were not prepared for such a blatant assault on their art. Seeing this degree of vandalism really hurt. The artist spent weeks painting the original mural in 2019. One of the first in Chinatown, Eight Immortals Crossing the Sea is a well-known Chinese folktale. The story of migration, also an allegory about how each person can overcome adversities in life. It's just heartbreaking to see our work, which is so packed um, with a message about inclusiveness and diversity, being um, destroyed like this. I ready, ready up there. The legacy business whose wall was defaced, gutted by the latest attack on Chinatown, which has been repeatedly covered with graffiti. The city, Vancouver, Bhutan, no good. It's, it's disheartening yet again. Community leaders are wondering what happened to the street code among taggers to leave murals alone. That respect broken here. I just think that there needs to be some sort of message that this sort of thing is, should not be tolerated and there are consequences for these actions. How come the city no charge to them? How come the city do nothing? When it reaches something like this where it's intentional vandalism and destruction, then there has to be something done with it. Potential solutions, they say, could include restorative justice for the taggers involved. The mural was commissioned by the city of Vancouver, which says it's working with the property owner and artists to remove the graffiti. This just can't stand. I mean, that's, yeah, it just, it hurts. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Police have arrested a suspect for the vandalism of Vancouver's Komagata Maru Memorial two months after charges were first laid. White paint, handprints and graffiti were strewn across the monument in Coal Harbor last August. The memorial shows the names of nearly 400 people who sailed from India to Vancouver in 1914 but were denied entry due to racist immigration exclusion policies. Four months after the vandalism, police announced they were looking for Uniar Kurniawan. He was arrested last night in the downtown east side and faces one count of mischief. A Surrey councillor is speaking out about threats being made against her. This is the first time I've ever heard of anybody wanting to be physical. The disturbing emails and how they're part of a much bigger problem next on the News Hour. Fact versus fiction, the deep fakes in Russia's disinformation war later on the news hour. Also tonight, how this six-year-old from Halifax just made history in the rap world. That's later. Right now, though, another troubling example of the increasing polarization of today's politics and the escalation of violent discourse. Surrey City Councillor Brenda Locke says she called RCMP after receiving a number of violent, threatening emails. As Remina Dea reports, she's not alone in facing extreme behavior directed at politicians. The Prime Minister pelted with gravel. 
BC Premier Horgan and his cabinet ministers hanged in effigy. Surrey councillor Brenda Locke, the latest politician to be targeted. It was uh, by email, several email, and it was uh, specifically violence against me. Graphic and violent threats now being investigated by Surrey RCMP, says Locke. This is the first time I've ever heard of anybody wanting to be physical. And so for me, that was uh, concerning, absolutely. Locke says the Mounties are taking the matter seriously. Surrey RCMP won't discuss specific details. They will only say an arrest was made over the weekend. No charges have been laid. You are married to a killer cop. Divorce your shit husband. Watch your back. Vancouver councillor Sarah Kirby Young tells us she too has faced disturbing threats in public office. Women targeted more than men, in her opinion. People will target folks that they perceive to be weaker or that they think won't fight back. And women typically are not seen to be as aggressive. And that's what I said. We have to stay in the, in the arena. We have to fight for it. I think there's no doubt about it that women in politics are, um, are under attack. Um, and I think that's why I hear from women saying there is no way I would ever go into politics. A danger to democracy. Locke refusing to be bullied out of office. In uh, some ways it makes me more dogged determined because I think we have to expose this kind of uh, nasty behavior. Romina Dea, Global News. Now to an update on a story we first brought you last week. The truck driver whose oversized load struck a concrete bridge and sent cement debris flying has now been fired. Jade Line Holdings says the employee was terminated after the company conducted its own investigation. Last Friday, a driver traveling through Highway 1 in the Fraser Valley reported being hit by two concrete chunks, one of them smashing through his side window and landing on the back seat. According to Jade Lines, the transport truck driver did have the proper permits for the load and knew the correct route. The company says the driver admitted he was at fault. No one was injured in the incident. Coming up, a B.C. woman missing hundreds of dollars in flight credits. Money should be treated like this. How she managed to get them back with the help of Consumer Matters. And later on the news hour, coming to grips with the return of the handshake. Traffic is steady in both directions over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge, but do keep in mind that there are lane closures for southbound traffic during the overnight hours for some ongoing maintenance. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Children cannot learn when they are hungry. Food insecurity also affects their mental health. That's why Global News and the Grocery Foundation are partnering for Toonies for Tummies and nourishing children in countless communities. Donate today to Toonies for Tummies in-store or online. A former Kelowna social worker accused of stealing from youth in his care took to the stand in day three of his sentencing hearing. Court heard Robert Riley Saunders admitted to creating fake contracts in order to misallocate funds, money that was supposed to go to at-risk youth in his care. He also admitted to covering his trail with other fraudulent documents. Last year, Saunders pleaded guilty to fraud over $5,000, breach of trust, and using a forged document. Saunders 
Harris was named in dozens of civil cases where he was accused of defrauding children in the ministry. A multi-million dollar settlement for his victims was reached with the B.C. government back in October of 2020. This hearing is expected to last a week. Well, many travelers have had to postpone trips because of the pandemic, which means some people have unused credits in their travel banks. But what happens when those credits suddenly disappear? That's what happened to one woman who spent weeks trying to get them back. With more, let's bring in Consumer Matters reporter Andrea. And thanks, Sophie. Pam Balrath had travel credits through the online booking company Flight Hub. She thought she had hundreds of dollars left in her travel bank that she intended to use at a later date. But when she checked her account, she was shocked by the amount. They don't know what their right and left hand is doing. For weeks, Pam Volrath has been playing detective, trying to crack the case on how the majority of her travel credits disappeared on Flight Hub. The Kitimat resident and her husband booked a trip to Kamloops twice through the Montreal-based online booking company. And both times, the flights were cancelled due to COVID. At the time, Pam says she received a credit with Flight Hub for just over $800. We didn't think much of it at the time assuming that $833 was still there. Until this past January when she checked her Flight Hub account. Lo and behold, there was no credit of $833, but it had gone down to $148 with no explanation. Pam reached out to Flight Hub immediately, but says she couldn't get a resolution despite calling numerous times and sending several emails. And it seemed that the only way I could talk to a real person was to click on the link where you would... Uh, book a new flight. Still, Pam couldn't get answers. Frustrated, she contacted the Better Business Bureau. Flight Hub currently has an F rating with the BBB and an alert. Flight Hub Group reached a $5 million settlement last year with the Competition Bureau of Canada after it looked into the company's marketing practices. After filing with the BBB, Pam says she did hear from Flight Hub stating her account had been updated. But she says that wasn't the case. But when I checked online, nothing had changed. It was still the same. So nothing had happened. With her situation unresolved, Pam turned to Consumer Matters for help. Lo and behold, the day after Consumer Matters had contacted them, they emailed me and said, uh, thank you for your patience. We are looking into your claim. Pam says eventually she received a credit of over $900 from Flight Hub. No explanation. <laughs> Why? Flight Hub telling Consumer Matters... Unfortunately, there was a problem in our system where the value of the original ticket was not appropriately assigned to the new ticket following the exchange, which is why Mrs. Volrath was erroneously informed the value of her credit was only $148.74. Nobody should be treated like this. And the fact that they didn't send me a personal reply until after Consumer Matters had contacted them, that speaks volumes. Now, as for why it took so long for Flight Hub to respond to Pam, Flight Hub told us it presumed that Pam attempted to reach the company's customer service team when wait times for speaking to a travel agent were unusually high because of the volume of calls, calls rather, caused by the latest wave of the pandemic. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, thanks for that, Anne. Still ahead, fears Russia could turn to chemical weapons. It will have severe consequences. How NATO is preparing and Vladimir Putin's latest strategy to put pressure on the West. Plus, in the ruins of the bombardment, a musical tribute to the victims of the Russian invasion.
flow is out for southbound traffic over here at the Massey Tunnel. Traffic is nice and light in both directions here. Keep in mind, though, there is overnight road work south of the tunnel on Highway 99 towards Ladner Trunk Road. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau addressed the European Union Parliament today, touting the resilience of democracy and urging countries to continue their support for Ukraine. Putin thought democracy was weak. He saw our disagreements and debates as weakness. But what he has never understood is that the rigors of debate, that forceful civic engagement, is what makes us strong. And that democracy, at its best, will always be stronger than authoritarianism. Trudeau told the EU Parliament that Russian President Vladimir Putin sought to weaken NATO and the European Union when he launched his attack on Ukraine. But Trudeau says he miscalculated. He encouraged, uh, he encouraged countries to continue, continue sending military aid to Ukraine and imposing punishing sanctions on Putin and those Trudeau labeled his enablers. Trudeau also said it's time to start thinking about rebuilding Ukraine after the war. Well, there are increasing fears tonight that Russia may begin using chemical weapons in Ukraine to advance its stalled invasion. As Global's Dan Grimmett reports, they come as Vladimir Putin tries to punish what he calls unfriendly European countries dependent on Russian energy. Air raid sirens ring over Ukraine's capital at dusk after another day of shelling. On Wednesday, bombs hit close to the city center in a residential area. Firefighters in Kyiv recorded the highest number of emergency calls since the war began. Despite heavy damage in places like Mariupol, after nearly four weeks, Russia has still failed to capture a major Ukrainian city and lost several generals in battle. NATO estimates between 7,000 and 15,000 Russian soldiers have been killed. As the advance falters, there is increasing concern Moscow could turn to chemical weapons. I think it's a real threat. It will be a blatant violation of international uh, uh, law and it will have severe consequences. For now, Russia is testing European allies in other ways. On Russian television Wednesday, Vladimir Putin announced countries that want to buy Russian natural gas will have to pay for it in Russian rubles. That could impact energy-dependent countries like Poland, which has taken in more than 2 million of Ukraine's 3.5 million refugees. At this train station in eastern Poland, the flow of mostly women and children has slowed down compared to last week. It's scary not only there in Ukraine, this woman says, but also here in Poland. We don't know where to go now. The European Union announced moves to help refugees access things like schools, accommodation and health care, prioritizing which countries need the most assistance. Poland is in top. The country number two is Austria. More military aid is expected for Ukraine from NATO leaders, including equipment to defend against chemical and biological weapons. Dan Grummet, Global News. A somber musical tribute amid the rubble of Kharkiv. Dennis.
Boris Karashchev uh, is a graduate from the Ukrainian National Tchaikovsky Academy of Music. He posted this video Tuesday afternoon. The cellist performing Bach's Cello Suite Number no. 1, surrounded by broken windows, bombed out buildings and rubble. He's hoping to encourage donations for humanitarian aid and rebuilding his city. And Kelowna City Council is offering unprecedented monetary support to help Ukraine. The decision is in lieu of making a sister city relationship with the northwestern city of Rive, uh, pardon me, Rivne. Kelowna Mayor Colin Basran says council decided it wanted to support the country as a whole and keep their support broad. Council will be donating $15,000 to the Ukrainian Canadian Congress as well as $5,000 to help local groups put on events in support of Ukraine. We felt compelled to want to do something, even though, again, um, this is perhaps outside of the scope of municipal government. Your heart breaks when you see the images of cities flattened, um, civilians being targeted. Um, it's all awful. And so we thought that uh, this was the very least we could do. Basran hopes this decision will help raise awareness and draw more people to the cause. Well, Russia's war in Ukraine has entered its 29th day, but those closely watching the Kremlin propaganda machine say the war of information will last far beyond any potential ceasefire. Global's Noor Ibrahim looks at the disinformation disaster unfolding online. A warning, some content may be disturbing. We've seen video games being mistaken for reality and actors alleging to be Russian victims. But a research fellow for Harvard says the Russian propaganda machine is way more sophisticated. We do know that Russia has created several deepfakes of people who, um, well, do not exist. That's the first important thing. The other is that they were pretending or simulating to be Ukrainians who support Putin and his invasions. A deepfake is fabricated media made by a machine. Artificial intelligence can be fed images to fabricate a very realistic video of a real person or craft a whole new person entirely. Ukrainian intelligence warned this could be done to impersonate President Zelensky, and last week the deepfake indeed hit the web. Very clearly, a bad mock-up, but some say the next one may not be. What they are trying to do is to make us doubt about what we see. Facebook and Twitter seem to be cracking down. But experts say disinformation has been rife for years on TikTok and Contacte, a state-controlled social media site. An AI firm in the UK and US says the world is not prepared. It can be really, really focused and weaponized in a way that it wasn't before because of this conflict. It's incredibly dangerous, too. So dangerous, says Mike Gualteri. Artificial intelligence can craft its own disinformation, disseminated like rapid fire, and evaluate its own performance by counting clicks. They're called generative adversarial networks, and they could be catastrophic if used in conflict. You could get public opinion to form in a very scary way. Exactly the kind of thing that Russia wants, says a Ukrainian studies professor. We will see uh, a huge probably radicalization probably in, in Russia in uh, coming years. Even if we have a ceasefire, um, the propaganda war, misinformation war, this will still continue. The good news, says Alexandra Pshagalinska, is there's technology to detect this. But it will only work if the public makes a habit of using it, something she says now clearly has to become routine. Nuri Ibrahim, Global News.
A somber day in the U.S. as the first woman named Secretary of State died today. Madeleine Albright was the 64th Secretary of State serving under President Bill Clinton. She was part of the administration that hesitated to involve the U.S. in two of the largest international crises at that time, Rwanda and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Albright was 84 years old. And turning to COVID-19 and the latest numbers in our province now, we have 258 people in hospital. 49 of those patients are in the ICU. One more person has died from complications of the virus. And we have 269 new confirmed cases. Coming up, from nursery rhymes to dropping rhymes. I'm a wanna pray. Yeah. And I like to play. The six-year-old rapper from Halifax who just made history. Also ahead, the biggest party of the summer, Growing Hope Pride, will make a comeback this year. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Well, after two years of virtual celebrations, the Vancouver Pride Society is cautiously planning for in-person events this summer. The Pride Festival theme this year will be Together Again, and organizers are hopeful they will be able to host the 44th Annual Pride Parade in person July 31st. The parade has drawn an estimated 400,000 people to downtown Vancouver in previous years. But of course, for the past two years, the festival has had to adapt to changing COVID-19 restrictions and it went online. Organizers say they will continue to offer virtual programming throughout the festival. So let's cross our fingers. It can happen this year in person. Wouldn't that be great? All right, let's bring uh, Christy Gordon in for a look at our weather forecast. Is that sunshine I see, Christy? Oh, man, we've had day after day of rain. This morning was a complete soaker as a front move through, and now this is so nice to have. I hope you're able to get out and sunshine. Now we do have this nice day on the way for us tomorrow, but there's some cloud cover we're going to be contending with. First, I want to show you this cell that rolled through a fairly strong storm cell. No reports of lightning here, but this is a shot from Delta with a uh, shelf cloud that you can see there. We had incredibly uh, gusty winds in through North Van as well as downpours as it traveled through the region in the afternoon. But with the sunshine, things warmed up nicely. Although it's showing 19 degrees in Kamloops, the official report is that it it hit 20 degrees. So did Ashcroft. So the warmest so far this year for that region, 16 in through Suyus, Victoria, 15, 16 degrees. So nice and mild, that's for sure. There's the front shifting through. We do have reports of some uh, lightning east of Vernon right now as the front continues to shift out of the region. And that will be the case overnight. So sunshine for all regions tomorrow morning. But as I mentioned, the south coast expecting cloud cover, likely pushing in through the morning hours and mainly overcast through the afternoon. At least it will be a dry day. So you'll still be able to get outside and enjoy. If you're a camp organizer, I'm sure you've been looking for a dry day. So tomorrow is definitely in, despite the fact we are going to see more cloud cover across the south coast. Friday is also looking mainly overcast, a slight chance of showers, but so far dry with a rainfall is not set to push in until much later in the day. So we deserve a couple of dry days, despite the fact that we're not going to see as much sunshine. 
Tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from the Alaska Highway, looking out over a gorgeous range, as you can see there. Thank you so much to Ron for that great wintry shot. They've had so much snow up that way. Sophie, back to you. All right. Thanks, Christy. A Halifax recording artist is dropping a new album and is making a name for himself with his mad beats. That's when he's not playing with Lego and just being a regular six-year-old. I'm a bonnet prince yeah. and I like to play. play. See me at the playground every day. Meet Levon Mayette Bruce, also known as Levon the Prince. According to his record label, he is the youngest rap artist to release an album in Canada. He comes by his talent naturally. His dad is award-winning rapper Jay Brew. Levon soaked up the music just by being in the studio with his dad. Well, he, uh, you know, he was actually in the studio with me since he's been about a year old. Um, so he sort of grew up in this environment. He's watched me make records. He's watched me write music a fair amount. And uh, actually, one day I was I was writing a new song, um, making the music for it, and he just asked if he could make a song. And I didn't know what to think at first. He was, I felt he was young. He was just turned five at the time. And uh, we tried it and it worked and he was just a natural. So we decided to keep going with it. Levon's album, Future King, is now available for download on a number of platforms. <laughs> Levon was enjoying seeing himself, I think, in the monitor <laughs> there. <laughs> All right. Good for him. Yeah, that is good. You never know. Fledgling rapper. All right, what do you have for us? Okay, so uh, Canada's men's soccer team could clinch a spot in the World Cup as soon as tomorrow, which is still mind-blowing for Canadian players like Tosant Ricketts. Last time Canada was in a World Cup, I wasn't even born. 1986, that was the last time, only time for Canada's men, but a number of scenarios exist where they can end that drought tomorrow. Also ahead, are you ready for the return of the handshake? How to handle touching people again in a post-pandemic world. All right, Squire is here now with sports. Yes, I am. The Canucks, the Canucks made a little switch in their plans today. They, uh, their goaltending plan for tonight and tomorrow was originally Thatcher Demko against the Avalanche tonight and Yaroslav Halak against Minnesota tomorrow. Instead, they flipped it. Halak started tonight's game. Demko will start tomorrow. And when you think about it, it does make pretty good sense. The game against the Wild is the one the Canucks have a better chance of winning Maybe facing Colorado will inspire Yaroslav to Halak to play like he can and the guys in front of him to play extra hard on defense. And they will need to because the Avalanche are not only the team that owns the best overall record in the NHL, they also have a home record of 25-3-3. So if you're not careful, they can literally live up to their nickname and bury you. The game, incidentally, in Denver just underway and it is scoreless. Now for years, Canada's men's soccer team getting to the World Cup required a miracle. Now it's the opposite. A miracle is required to keep Canada out of the World Cup this year. We haven't qualified yet, but we are only two points away from clinching a spot in this year's World Cup. 
Tomorrow, Canada plays in Costa Rica. There are four scenarios where Canada could be guaranteed a spot in the World Cup by tomorrow night. Here they are. Canada wins the game. That's the best way to do it. Win and you're in. A draw with Costa Rica also works if Panama draws or loses its game to Honduras. But if that doesn't happen, Mexico tying or beating the U.S. with a Canada draw would also work. And if Canada loses tomorrow, and it would be the first time they've lost in qualifying this year, they can still get in if there is a combination of the Americans losing to Mexico and Panama tying or losing its game with Honduras. Whatever the case, the fact Canada is this close is glorious for other Canadian professional players. It's been a long time coming. You know, last time Canada was in a World Cup, I wasn't even born. And, you know, I'm one of the oldest players on this team, so think how that feels for the other young Canadians, you know, like they've, they haven't... They haven't seen Canada in, in a position like this, but it's uh, it's really bringing the country together. You see the the next generation of, of young soccer players wanting to be the next Alfonso Davies, wanting to be the next Jonathan David. Uh, you know, you, you it, it's its impact is much greater than we. The, the ripple effect is is huge. Maybe you don't necessarily realize the the instant impact. Maybe you do but hopefully this team will be talked about for, uh, for a long period of time to come. Up in Prince George, Women's World Curling Championships, Canada against Sweden. First end didn't go so well for the Swedes. They wanted to take out two Canadian stones. They only got one and Canada drew in for three. And then, Kerry Anderson will make a double takeout here to score three in the fifth. Canada had a pretty impressive lead, but then the uh, Swedes made a game out of it. 10-8 the final for Canada. Canada's record is now 6-2. The NFL offseason has almost been as interesting as when the NFL actually plays game. Games make that. The number of star players that have changed teams has been incredible. Russell Wilson, of course, was traded. Devontae Adams was traded. Deshaun Watson, Matt Ryan, Khalil Mack, Tom Brady retired, and then he unretired. And now the Chiefs have traded superstar wide receiver Tyreek Hill, the touchdown machine who can outrun pretty much any defender. He is now a Miami Dolphin. And for that, the Chiefs got five draft picks from Miami. A first rounder, a second rounder, two fourth rounders, and a sixth rounder. And Hill will get something too. A brand new four-year contract worth $120 million. That's why the Chiefs traded him. He wanted more money. He is now the highest paid receiver in football. Vancouver's Rebecca Marino lost her first round match at the Miami Open today to Katerina Siniakova. Uh, Marino actually won the first set 6-3, but she lost the next two sets 6-2-6-1. Leila Fernandez will play her second round match in Miami tomorrow. But the entire women's tour was stunned by an off-court announcement today. The number one player in the world is calling it quits at the age of 25. Australia's Ash Barty announced her retirement, saying she has lost the physical and emotional drive to keep playing. She's been the number one player the past 114 weeks. She did walk away from tennis as a teenager to take up cricket, only to return two years later. I just know at the moment in my heart for me as a person, this is right. And um, I know I've, I've done this before. Um, but in a very different feeling. But I know that the time is right now for, for me to step away and chase other dreams um, and, yeah, and to, to put the rackets down.
She's got her whole life ahead of her. Well, that's true. I'm thinking that maybe she'll come back. Well. <laughs> Athletes tend to do that. She's got the talent. So she has the talent. So. She can take two years, play some cricket, do whatever she wants, and then come back and be number one again. We should have retired at 25. But. If I had retired at 25, <laughs> I don't know where I'd be right now. I was barely but even I'm working I'm going at to guess I probably wouldn't be able to pay my rent. <laughs> All right. Up next, are you ready for hugs and handshakes to make a comeback? I know Squire's answer. That's up next. Or at least a little bit. There's a tricky etiquette question. Do we go back to shaking hands or shake that ritual altogether? Here's Global's Brittany Rosen. Nice to meet you. To shake. Hey, nice to meet you. Or not to shake. Many being met with that question as they return to the workplace and resume social gatherings. Sometimes we're in these spontaneous moments where... All of a sudden, we're confronted with, do I continue with the handshake they seem to be starting, and and what do I do? The handshake dates all the way back to the 5th century. It represents a symbol of peace, cooperation, and the budding of a new relationship. But COVID-19 forced many people to loosen their grip. Brittany Rosen with Global News. I'm good. You're not a handshaker. Irene Hudson says she avoided social contact even before the pandemic. I don't touch anything until I get home. I've been flu-free for almost 20 years. What are you kind of going to do moving forward? What's your social behavior going to be? Usually in my work, we usually use our elbows. It's a social gesture commonly used to close out the deal. But career experts say while hugs and handshakes aren't history, workplace etiquette has evolved. There's any number of ways we can do this. We can acknowledge them uh, like I would shake your hand, but um, we're not going to go there yet. Doing something symbolic that shows respect, like the head nod, is a good idea. Hey, how's it going? Lattendorf adds whether someone wants to do one of these, one of these, or a traditional shake, it never hurts to ask. I guess we'll just, okay, bye. Brittany Rosen, Global News. I called it wrong. I thought Squire would be anti-handshake. I like the handshake. I miss the handshake. Me too. It's not like I shake people's hands and then lick my hand afterwards, you know, but just a good firm handshake is nice. And on that note, I'll wave goodbye. (laughs) Have a good night, all. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.